You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, the official podcast of the Coastal LA Singles Ministry, where our focus is reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. Well, guys, I want to tell you I am grateful to be here with you, and I'm humbled and I'm honored at the same time to uh, be able to watch Marshall up here as he's leading the worship and see his daughter leading singing is moving to me. First time I met Marshall, Marshall was about her age. Uh, and that's not far from wrong. He was a young college student in Colorado, and I was out there for some reason or another. I don't know, to clean up after something or what. But uh, I've known him off and on for a long time, and I've watched Marshall and Sean both have highs, have lows. I've seen them draw close to God, and I've seen them struggle from a distance at being close to God. And I understand that because that describes my life. And you're here not just to have a great weekend getaway, and, and I really want to encourage you to make the most of this opportunity. I'm going to share some things about why this is special for me to be here. How many of you in here are under 38 years old? Stand up. Anybody that's under 38? Okay, that's a lot of people. Go ahead and sit down. And I want to I share with you something because 38 years ago, on Labor Day weekend, was the most transforming weekend of my life. It changed everything about who I am and who I hope I can become from this point on in my life. I like that you're doing the uh, evaluations, trying to get in touch with your strengths and weaknesses. One of the things that I struggle with with those type of things, I want to tell you, that does not define who you are. It may be where you are at this moment. But it is absolutely not who you are. You are being transformed by life, and how that transformation takes place is completely up to you. 100% your choice about how you choose to respond. It's your choice about how you're going to respond to this weekend. The last day of August, 1977, I was at a midweek church service after I'd been attending church for a year and one month. Brothers have been studying with me. I was at an elite military school being trained how to be a leader of men, and I had no idea of who I was or what I should be or what I could become. But somebody else had a vision for me. And that particular Wednesday, we had been studying off and on for a year, and I was a pretty prideful, self-assured, insecure young man. And I was relatively intelligent, and... I relied a lot on that to make me feel safe. Because if I could use that 
to make someone else feel insecure, then they couldn't get to me. But I was in the middle of a transforming process that was taking place. That particular Wednesday night, the minister named Roy Smalling was doing a lesson on surrender. The concept of surrendering to God and what that means. Now, surrender to someone in a military school being trained as a warrior is not a good word. Everything in that worldly training I was getting taught you never, ever, ever surrender. That was also part of my sinful human nature. You never give up on anything, even if you're wrong. If you're wrong, you shout louder, you get more aggressive, and eventually maybe you can just intimidate them into shutting up. But the idea of surrendering was something I was struggling with. In my journey to try to become a Christian, That lesson disturbed me deeply. And I remember leaving the midweek service, going back to the academy, and it was just churning in me. That weekend was Labor Day weekend. It was the first time that we had had a three-day weekend in a year. And I chose to spend that with the two brothers that were reaching out to me. They literally began with a follow-up to that lesson from Wednesday, and they started talking about lordship. And we literally studied and prayed Friday night all through Saturday leading into the Sunday worship service. As we were singing songs, I love to worship. And I love to worship in the mountains. But I was listening to the words, and those words are talking about God and how amazing God is. That this isn't about you and it's not about me. It's about God. And the power, the majesty, the purity, the potential that God creates in ordinary people. To become something so extraordinary that it makes people in the world pause And wonder, how is that possible? That's the presence of God. And so as we're singing songs, and I'm looking at Marshall and his baby, up here on the stage, I'm remembering those people who had so much to do with my own transformation. 38 years ago, this weekend, Saturday night, was the pivotal moment in my decision to become a Christian. Next Sunday, the next morning, thank you. We woke up, went to church. The lesson was a continuation of the concept of surrender and lordship and what it means to be at the foot of the cross. And I was struggling because I knew what it meant. It meant that I had to be willing to let go of me. And I got defensive. After church, we went out to lunch, and then we started studying. We studied literally almost all night Sunday. 
And Art Clark, at 6 o'clock in the morning on Monday, September 5th, 1977, looked at me and he said, I don't know what your problem is. You know the truth, but you're so arrogant. And you think your life is so valuable, you're not willing to even look at what it can become. And he was one of the most mild-mannered people I've ever met. I had so exasperated him because they had studied for hours and hours and hours. And he walked out of the room. And I sat there and soaked in my own shame. Because everything he had said was true. And I made a conscious decision at that moment in time, no more. No more. And I called he and Tom and Scott in and I said, listen, you're right. And I said, I don't want to keep God from being able to work in my life. And I want to become a Christian now. We drove down to the church, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, September 5th, 1977, I stood in the baptistry, and he asked me some very specific questions. He said, number one, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And with all my heart, having come from an agnostic, maybe an atheistic background, I absolutely believed and was convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That for me was such an epiphany. It was such a powerful statement to say, yes, I believe he is God's son. And then he said, do you believe that he died for your sins? And for me, that was personal because I don't know that I ever believed that anybody would be willing to lay down their life for me. And it meant the world that in spite of my arrogance, in spite of my ignorance, in spite of everything I was, he wanted a relationship with me. And I remember saying with as much conviction as I could, yes, I believe he died for me. It wasn't universal. It wasn't general. It wasn't about you. It didn't matter. It was about me. Jesus, the Son of God, chose to die for me. And then he looked at me and he said, do you believe he was raised from the dead? Because in that is the hope. And that is the power. And that is the promise. That's what makes this all worthwhile. And I could say with everything in me, yes, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you believe those things? Then he said, then what is your confession? Jesus is my Lord. I knew what that meant for me at that moment. I had no idea this is where I would be. Had I known that, I don't know what I would have done. But I knew enough then to make a decision for then. Jesus is my Lord. I have never stopped making that decision a single day in my life since. That's why you're here tonight. 
Call it the cost of leadership. Call it leadership in the kingdom. This world doesn't have a clue about what we're up here trying to do. And the truth is, most of us have been infected by worldly philosophies more in some ways than we have by spiritual thinking. And quite frankly, the state of the church is not at the high peak of its inspirational time. And quite honestly, our singles ministries are not at the high peak of the inspirational time. But that doesn't have to define who we are. It's a time in our life what you choose to do from here determines what it becomes as we move forward. That's why we're here. We are here to take this opportunity to set aside distractions and you lock in and let your Labor Day experience be for you what mine was for me. It completely transformed me. And it's completely going to transform me tonight as well. Because just like you, I've got choices to make. Turn your Bibles with me if you would, Exodus chapter 3. You're all here by default. You're not worthy. You're not all that in a bag of chips. You ain't so special in and of yourself. You're here not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. That you've been chosen by God, and God's confusing to me. I don't understand how He works and why He works, why He does the things He does. I guarantee you, I never in a million years would have chosen me for the ministry. My high school graduation class voted me the most likely to be incarcerated. And I was a good student. I was a good athlete. I just had no limits. And I had no sense. I believed the myth about only the good die young, and I knew I wasn't no good. So I wasn't worried about that. You're here because God sees in you something you cannot even begin to see. Something that not even anybody else in here sees in you. You may have someone in here that sees you and thinks you're pretty fine. Or you may think, you may just think someone in here thinks you're pretty fine. You're here because in you is the potential for God to make people stand up and say, how is that possible? Because in you, a miracle can take place that will transform other people's lives. That's what leadership is. It's not about talent. It's not about knowledge. It's not about deserve. It's about potential in the hands of a risen Savior. One of my favorite places in the entire world is Mount Nebo. About three weeks ago, I was able to be on Mount Nebo for a quiet time. 
And if you don't know where Mount Nebo is, it's the place where God took Moses to tell him he would never enter the promised land. And from there, God took Moses into heaven. And when you're there, you're standing on the very spot that Moses stood with God. And as you look out, you can see Jericho, Jerusalem, all of the places that were leading into the promised land. And God laid before Moses' eyes what was going to happen. And even though Moses wasn't going to get to go in, Moses' dream was going to be fulfilled. It's a powerful vision. In Exodus chapter 3, you've got the story of Moses with Jethro. Moses is now how old? Does anybody know? 80 years old. I'm almost 60. That's as old as dirt. (laughs) 80 is like Crypt Keeper. (laughs) And he had been raised as a privileged son of Egyptian royalty. Later on in life, half of those 80 years, he became aware of the fact that that's not who he was. You see, his profile indicated things that just weren't true. And God began to open his eyes to what he could become. But he's wandered for 40 years after his first inspirational act of murdering another human being. And he's now married to the daughter of a priest of Midian named Jethro. And I don't know if you know who that is. The Midianites were descended from Abraham. Midian was one of Abraham's sons. But the Midianites had aligned themselves with the Moabites, and they'd become so much like the world that at this time, it's believed, they were worshiping pluralistic gods. That their, their worship of God had become so diluted and so polluted that we really don't even know what he would have believed. So from his first awareness of being a Jew for 40 years, prime influence is the priest of Midian. Now, obviously, Jethro had an awareness of God. Some of the things that Jethro talks about. The the Midianites knew about God, but their view of God had gotten warped. And it's very likely that Jethro's view of God is like so many people in the world today. And like us, those people have had such an influence on the way we think about God. At that time, God calls Moses, just as I believe God is calling you tonight. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So, Moses thought, I got to check this out. 
That's all it was. It was something bizarre. He wasn't on a spiritual quest. He wasn't in the mountains because he was seeking closeness with God. He thought maybe, who knows? I don't know how you came up here. I don't know what your motivation was. But there's a bush burning. And God's calling on you. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from the bush. And God is calling to you from the pulpit. Moses! Moses! And Moses said, here I am. I love this. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Do you realize that when you came into that door tonight, and we started singing, you were coming into the presence of God. And we need to be careful how we do that. There needs to be a spiritual taking off of our sandals as we in humility come before the Lord. Because when the Lord speaks, everything changes. God's speaking to me. He was speaking to me in the songs. He's speaking to me in the sharing. He's speaking to me through the Spirit moving in you. God's speaking to you. Open your ears, open your eyes, and soften your heart, and let the Lord in. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And that was significant when you've got a priest of Midian standing there who's a descendant of Abraham. God's saying, I'm not your papa, I am his God. This is serious and significant stuff. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face. I wonder why. It says, because he was afraid to look at God, lest God see where he really is. You think this wasn't unnerving? After a life spent so far from God, to be accidentally, in your eyes, brought into his presence and now being accountable. The next thing, I love this. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. God's saying, I hear the cries. I hear the cries in our own country. Literally, county clerks being locked up because they took a stand against gay marriage. And I'm not bashing gays, but they're standing up for their convictions. And they're being jailed for it in our country. What's going on in the Middle East? You and I can't even comprehend it. Last week... One of our young Syrian brothers who had an 18-year-old college-aged daughter who had become a Christian as well 
where they were living, ISIS had moved in, and it became so frightening for them that they did a foolish thing. In trying to get out, they did something illegal. They booked passage on some little dinghy boat. The two of them got on the boat in hopes of getting away to Europe, and somewhere along the way, the ship was sunk, and they both drowned. Baby Christians. It's happening every day. We have ten brothers and sisters that in the Sudan right now are missing. We've had no contact for four and a half to five months. We don't know if they're dead, if they've been captured by rebels, or what. And in the middle of all of that, those brothers and sisters are being expected to make exactly the same decision you and I are called to tonight. What hinders you? A little over a year ago, I was able to be a part of a study with a brother from Yemen. And we had three brothers that came, three men that came from Yemen to study the Bible. And in Yemen, if it is known that they're reading the Bible, they can be executed. These guys made it all the way out of Yemen into the northern part of Jordan in order to be at a conference where they could see and for the first time open their Bibles in the public. Can you imagine never having had that opportunity where they could sing songs out loud of praise to God? They were so overcome, they were just weeping. And as the the weekend wore on, they finished their studies, and I was able to baptize a couple of them at the end of that conference. One of those guys that was baptized went back to Yemen, and one of them had two wives which is common. We run into that in some of these places. And his, his attitude is he's going to keep the good wife, the one that's positive, and get rid of the other one. <laughs> and we had to tell him, no, you can't do that. <laughs> but both of them had to conceal from their wives the fact that they were disciples or that they were reading the Bible because one of them's wife was Dash, Isis. And if she became aware, his family, her family, would cut him to pieces and feed him to their dogs. Can you imagine going to bed at night, not even being able to pray because your wife's there? The other one went back, and he began to reach out to his wife. And she started opening up, and they started staying with her. And one day on the way to church, or on the way to school, he was walking his two, uh, three little girls to school, and he evidently had shared a passage of Scripture with them as they were walking. That afternoon when they got out of school, their maternal grandfather picked them up, and one of the children shared something from that passage, and the grandfather became suspicious his daughter might be reading the Bible. So he took his son, and his son and he went to her house, grabbed her, took her to their house, beat her almost to death, poured gasoline on her, and set her on fire. I've got her pictures in my phone. She lived for five days and then died. Her husband saw that. Grabbed the 17-year-old son and the three younger children, fled Yemen, 
And when I was in, uh, I don't even know where I was at, someplace last year, called to see if there was any way we could get him out of Yemen into someplace safe. And he's in Cairo, Egypt now. Right before we got into Cairo this trip, he had been appealing to the United Nations to get refugee status, and they told him the earliest that they can even hear his case is 2019. We live in different worlds. We've got to make the most of what we've been given. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying and out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. God hears you. God hears everyone around you. And he hears your sufferings. And it doesn't fall on deaf ears. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now this is the rubber meeting the road. This is why you're here. God's heard the cries of singles across the L.A. area. The loneliness, the discouragement, the hopelessness. In a couple of weeks, there's going to be a sister here from Sudan. Beautiful, beautiful sister. Master's degree, sharp as a tack, works for the office of the president, but she probably has no hope of ever getting married. Because in the Sudan, in order to get married, the brothers have to provide a dowry. An average dowry is 50 cattle. That is the equivalent in U.S. dollars to $100,000. The average income in the Sudan is $3,000 U.S. dollars a year. And so the brothers and sisters in the church there, they're, they're feel hopeless. And now trying to help them understand they've got to set aside those traditions of their family and change the way they think. It's so deeply ingrained. Well, she's going to be in New York City, and she's coming out here, and I'm going to set her up on some dates. And I hope that she has a great time on dates. But more than anything else, I want her to be around brothers and sisters who are full of faith. I'm not as concerned about her dating as I am concerned about her spirituality. Because if she's close to God, God will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, God always provides. So God looked at his little Moseses on their retreat. That's you. So now go. Are you listening to the voice of God? I'm sending you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What an intimidating thing that was. Who was Pharaoh? A betrayed family member. He says, you're going back. To the very place you've been hiding from for 40 years. I don't know what you have in your past, but God is calling you to stand up and face it so the future doesn't determine itself by what happened to you in the past. 
Powerful stuff. Moses is a little taken back. Who am I? And so many times when we're called to step up to pitch in in any, our first thought is all the obstacles. Wow, what about my work? If I'm really going to lead, will people follow? Is it going to mean that I have to miss work to be at church? So many of us miss church to be at work. And it's no big deal. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I'm not even a good Jew. He was a lousy Jew. And the only thing that he probably knew about Judaism had come from the priest of Midian. You think you've got some theological questions. Moses was all jacked up. He had no idea what it meant to be a man of God. But God said, it's you, big guy. So God listens, as God always does. And God says, I will be with you. I don't know why you're here. I look at you and I think, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> really? That's the best you can do? People feel that about me all the time. I get that every day. I get that in the morning when my wife wakes up. Wakes up, rolls over, looks at me, and she's going, oh, no, it's still here. Just today, up here in the spiritual retreat where I'm coming to teach, one of my dear friends, we're in the cocoa. I saw her, and I said, Lorinda. Actually, I called her beautiful. She immediately knew who I was talking to. She turned around and was checking out who it was. <laughs> she came up and gave me a hug, and she said, can I talk to you? And when you're me, and you hear that, it's usually not a positive thing. <laughs> and she pulled me aside to tell me that I'd hurt her feelings. And I'm going, I just called you beautiful. <laughs> but it was about something that had happened when we were setting up this trip to the Middle East. And, and I heard her, and it breaks my heart. The last thing I want to do is hurt Lorinda. But I do that. I mess things up. Most of you would have never studied the Bible with me. I, I'm telling you. The guys that studied the Bible with me, I pulled a gun on them. I punched one of them right in the face. I was not looking for Jesus. I just ended up at a barbecue that I thought was a 4th of July barbecue. It was a bunch of Jesus freaks. And they're harvesting, and I look like the grain. <laughs> but even as unspiritual as I was, I could see there was something different. Those guys went through unbelievable things for me to stand in that baptism 38 years ago. They saved my life. Neither one of them is faithful today. 
Not a single member of the campus ministry that I was converted is faithful today. But me. Not a single one of the guys that started their internships when I started my internship is faithful today. If it's just you, what are you going to do? You're going to choose. Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 through 6. He goes on through and basically he reiterates to the Israelites how faithful God has been with them. Because we so easily forget what God has done for us. We let some hurt, some misstep, some insensitive minister who says something cause us to forget the presence of God. You're on holy ground. Keep your sandals off. Because people like me and people like you, they're going to make mistakes. But this isn't about you and it's not about me. It's about God. And so he reminds them in this passage of what God has done. But then in chapter 31, Moses calls them all together and basically says, I'm an old dude and I'm done. I am no longer able to lead you. The guy that people didn't trust at this point in his life is all that they trusted. And for so many of us, we see men that we trust that are spiritual men who fall or are taken out for different reasons. What's it going to do to your faith? The guy that put me in the ministry, that sent me out, shortly after I became a young evangelist, got open that he was picking up other men in Kmart bathrooms having sex with them. And he had two children. It was devastating to me. And he wanted my help, and when I tried to help him and I couldn't, I finally said, look, we got to get some other help. He got me fired for being disunited. And it hurt. He let my wife know that day he was going to do it before he talked to me, and nobody said anything to me. Poor Libby was manipulated. She didn't know what to do. I could let that define me. I was heartbroken. But I had to choose. And I had to remember what God had done for me. That's what he was doing here. And he's saying literally that God, God has led them. He's proven himself over and over and over. God's done that for us. You and I have seen miracles. You're here because of a miracle. You were transformed from a godless heathen into a living child of God. Deuteronomy 34, you see the story when Moses climbs up to Nebo and God says it's time. Can you imagine being Joshua? 
I want to show you a slide. You may not recognize these people. These are from San Diego, and I know we've got some San Diego brothers and sisters here. This is Kelly Havens, oldest daughter of George and Cleo Havens, one of the elders in San Diego when I was there. This is a guy named Fran Ellis, a small group leader in our Bible talk. Right over in this corner. Simon Hinn was an engineering student at San Diego State University. Not even a big leader. Just a college student in a campus ministry. And when he graduated, he had to go back to Jordan for compulsory military service. He was in San Diego going back to Jordan. There were no Christians in all of the Middle East at that time. Just one. And he had no choice. We lost track of him for a while. Several years later ago, we sent the team out to Jordan. And the first week, they're out sharing their faith. And when they're out walking through a market, a guy walks up to them and shares his faith with them. His name was Fatty. And Fatty started talking to them about God and his conviction. And as he began talking, they started realizing, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) Fatty was the first conversion when Simon went back. And he was out sharing his faith. So they go to church together. And they realize there's over 30 Christians in Jordan already because Simon started sharing with his family. Every church we have in the Middle East today came from one man making one choice in uncomfortable circumstances to share what he knew. What are you going to do? I want to very quickly look at five specific things that I think are necessary for you to take out of this weekend what you really need to take. And I want you to think these things through. Number one is you've got to be willing to surrender to God. In Matthew chapter 26, you've got the story of Jesus, the Son of God, the Alpha, the Omega, the author of creation, knowingly committing to God to surrender his will to God, begging God, don't make me do it. But I love the way he says it. Not my will. Your will be done. Now I'm going to say something that's going to offend you. I'm giving you fair warning. The singles are some of the most independent, prideful, self-reliant people I know. And the longer that we're single, the longer that we're independent, the more prideful we become unless we choose to be different. Starts here. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe He died for you? When I was asked to go in the ministry... I had just been accepted to medical school and had my medical school paid for by a research grant. 
My whole life I've been planning on being an orthopedic surgeon. And I had really great dreams and visions of what I was going to be in the ministry. I was going to be a wealthy doctor who would give lots of money and be one of the best support people in the whole church. I had no idea. I had no desire to speak in publicly. I'm more of the behind-the-scenes kind of guy that kind of motivates people. And they came and asked me to do an internship. I thought I was going to throw up. First words out of my mouth is, you have got to be kidding me. I wasn't even remotely interested or open. But a young woman came to me, a meddler. She had been the girlfriend of the guy that had reached out to me, and she was also Libby Dunham's best friend. Libby Dunham is my wife now. And Ann got right up in my face, which was really hard for somebody like me to take. And not because she was a woman, but because she was human. But she was in my grill. And she flat out told me that I needed to learn how to be spiritual. She just challenged me the week before about how short the shorts were that I was wearing. And that I was running around without a shirt on at the devotional. And now they're asking me to go on staff. They have the wrong guy. But she really got right in my face and she challenged me. So I decided, okay, time to go be with Jesus. I had a pet wolf at the time and I took her and we went out to Rocky Mountain National Park for 10 days by myself going out to talk to Jesus, looking for a bush. Here was the bush. At some point in the middle of the morning, I remember September 5th, 1977. Art Clark, Scott Shaw, Tom Sorrell looking in my eyes and asking me, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And all alone, in the beautiful mountains of Colorado, I still believed. Do you believe that he died for you? Not for the masses. Do you believe that he died for you? And I believe that. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. And the question I ask myself, what does it mean to you that Jesus is your Lord? And I sat there and I thought, oh my gosh, my parents are going to freak out. <laughs> And I was right. They hired someone to kidnap me. I ended up being legally disinherited. And I knew that was going to happen. 
I had no desire to be in the ministry. It wasn't appealing to me. It wasn't attractive to me. But I wanted Jesus to know that what he did on that cross for me made a difference in one man's life. Came down, went over to the school, withdrew, went to the church, and said, here I am. That week, campus devotional, brother that asked me to go into ministry and it put me in the ministry came up behind me. They were just sharing with everybody that I was the new intern, which people are going, huh? <laughs> Walks up behind me, pinches the back of my arm, and I was a pretty jumpy person back then. And I turned around and I hit him right in the face and dropped him on the stage. That may be funny to you. It was humiliating to me. That's where I was at. And knowing where I was at, God could choose to use even me. It's not who I am. It's where I was at. Are you willing to surrender your will to God? Number two, you have to be willing to redefine who you are. I had this persona. You know, I was a wrestler. I was rough and tumble. I was arrogant, all those things. And there was a part that that was kind of cool. That was kind of, I was in the Rockies, you know. Those kind of guys are cool. But I had to decide that is not who I want to be defined as. When I got up here, someone walked up to me, and he said, are you that guy that killed the bear with a bow? And I did. But it bothers me that's what people think about when they think about me. I would love to have someone come up and say, are you that guy that loves Jesus? Are you that guy who's willing to risk his life in places nobody else will go? Are you that guy who can weep at the songs that you're singing because it reminds you of what Jesus has done for you? Are you willing to be transformed from who you are and who you relate to You're a chosen people. God doesn't make mistakes. And you ain't a mistake. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But look at this, a people belonging to God. What's your identity? Teacher? Some other job description? Or Christian? Yesterday, 
Simon and Rima Hen are back here to get help and retraining. They're heroes of the faith. What they've done and how they've affected and influenced the whole world has been transformative. But they're at a point where they need some help. And we walk into the Ralph's grocery store by me, and they're getting some stuff for the condo they're staying at. We go by the first cashier, and she said, hey, I didn't know you were back. And I said, yeah. I said, it's great to be back. And I said, these are some friends of mine. She looked at him. She said, I want you to know this is one of the sweetest men I know. He's always bringing stuff to feed us. And she said, I don't go to church with him, but maybe I should. The guy that was checking the people checked themselves out, pulled over and came up and said something to him too. said, you're with good people here. He'll take care of you because he even takes care of us. I make food for them almost every week. I've been doing it for 10 years. Every time I go into Ralph's, I'll take them soup. I take them salsa. I mow the lawns of my neighbors. I'm not doing it for money. I'm not doing it for praise. I want them to know there's somebody out there that cares somebody who's been chosen by God and belongs to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful life. What are you living for? And I'm not tooting my horn. I don't deserve to be up here. I'm telling you why I feel so passionately. Because Jesus died for me. You've got to be willing to transform and redefine who you are. I hope that right now this is not who I am. I hope this is a destination that I'm at. Because I hope that I can become better. My wife deserves a better husband. I cannot wait for the day she walks up and rolls over and looks at me and sings, Hallelujah! Instead of free at last, free at last. Number three, you've got to let God do the changing, the transforming. See, we're willing to change what we're willing to change. What are you willing to let God do to change you? Most of my transformation in the last seven years have come through incredible personal suffering. I about lost my wife. And in the middle of it, my son, the son who's most like me, became a drug addict. One week before we left to go to the Middle East, he overdosed on heroin. When they found him, he's in a bathtub, not breathing. They were able to revive him. I don't know what his journey is going to be, but this isn't what I signed up for. I cannot even comprehend how one of my children would be struggling with that. And quite frankly, I was so insensitive to people that went through that because I hated it. Let me tell you, it's changed who I am. I'm building a rehab center now. Not for my son, but because of what being in love with my son has taught me. The needs are so great. There's so many people that have no place to go. There's no place in the kingdom that has a rehab facility. So we're going to build one. 
And I don't care if I'm the spokesman for drug addicts. I don't care who knows what's going on in my life. Because that's the reality I live with. And God is using it to change my heart. A year after I became a Christian, I was involved in a drug bust. Busting some guys selling drugs. And three of my closest friends were murdered. I hated drug addicts. The depth of who I am. I was in school being trained to kill the very people I'm serving in the Middle East. I'm not the same person. God has changed me. And what's better is he's still changing me. I'm not dead yet. I may look it. I may feel it. But as long as there's breath in this life, I want life's experiences to change who I am to who I can become. Because Jesus deserves better than me. Are you willing to change? Are you willing to let your experiences transform you? Or does it have to be your way or the highway? Number four, you've got to let others help you. Some of us are willing to let somebody help us if they say whatever they're going to say in the right way, at the right time, in the right place. And if they have the right look on their face. And if they bring gifts and cards to reassure us that we're wonderful. I can't handle my life. I have more responsibility than I can even begin to handle. I've got more emotional stuff going on this last week. And in Colorado, when we were out there to go, pray where we used to pray. My niece, who's 38, gets married, and it should have been joyful, but she's been in jail for over a year for alcoholism. She got out and had to go to rehab for a year. The guy she met, she met in rehab, and she was drunk the morning of her wedding. My life is overwhelming. I can't handle it on my own. I'm tough. I'm well trained. I've experienced a lot. But by myself, I'm weak. And Satan will take you out. He's smarter than you. He knows the scripture better than you. And he knows your sin better than you. I am as open as I know how to be in every venue I'm in, whether it's a one-on-one counseling time. When we get together for discipleship times, and we have them, by the way, every week I have them. In every one of my discipling situations that I'm a disciple, I start off with my confession of how my wife and I are doing because that's one of the most important relationships. And if we're bumping, we're telling You should come to our staff meetings. It's like a self-help for the minister's rehab. We start at 9.30 in the morning. We have breakfast for a half an hour. And then we talk about how we're doing. For two and a half hours. And then we'll deal with the agenda items. Because if we deal with the agenda and we don't deal with the heart, what good is it anyway? And they have no problem stopping me in the middle of a meeting. Happened two weeks ago. 
and it was a sister. (laughs) I've been taking stuff from women my whole life. My mother was a woman and my sisters were women. I know what women are capable of. And when the hand goes up, and they say, can I share something? I'm going, oh, please don't. (laughs) If you would have said what you said to your wife to me, oh, my gosh, she's tougher than you. And we stop our staff meeting to help me be sensitive to Libby. We've been married 34 years. Can you imagine the amount of suffering she's gone through? (laughs) But I'm not dead yet. (laughs) And there's hope. And she's secure and confident because she sees me getting help. And it makes her willing to get help. How open are you about the deepest, darkest, everything? Sat down with Tom Tracy, and I love Tom. Said, Tom, how are you doing? And first thing out of his mouth is he told me the truth. About things he's struggling with. When was the last time we talked, Tom? Years. He's got a chance. Because if he gets open and he gets help, he can change. Don't go it on your own. You're in a crowd of people struggling to be spiritual. Let them be your brothers and sisters. This is a safe environment because it's a saved environment. Not because it's a sinless environment. These people are all jacked up. They're mess. And they're going to hurt you. If they don't, I guarantee you I will. So what? The cross didn't hurt. Fifth and finally, you've been really patient, and I appreciate it. I want to challenge you to lead with conviction and spirituality. At a time in Israel's history, When they needed leadership, there were no men to lead. Barak, who should have led, deferred to Deborah. Thank God there were spiritual women, but what a tragic thing that we live in a society where there are so many spineless men. Some of you need to go down to CVC and buy a bottle of calcium tablets. Get one of the big ones, the 500 tablets, and you need to start taking three tablets three times a day until your backbone grows because you're jellyfish. You say, well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid all the time. You think I wasn't afraid of you? Most of you didn't even talk to me. You just looked at, why is the old guy here? Shared this earlier. Face the things you fear the most. And the death of fear is imminent. Every one of us is afraid. Fear is an emotion. 
Are you going to really let your emotions determine your destiny? It's affected by your sugar levels. (laughs) By your sleep. By whether the person next to you snores. You're better than that. And God's bigger than that. I may not be right, but I'm going to lead. And when I find out I'm wrong, I'll accept it. I'm a work in progress. But I won't be wishy-washy. I don't care whether I'm an I, an S, a D, or a P, or a Z. (laughs) Comes down to this for me. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I believe. And I believe he died for me. I believe God raised him from the dead. My conviction is, Jesus is my Lord. Oh, for the day when the leaders and the singles rise up and lead. People will follow. Thank you. You've just listened to the Elevate Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit elevatecoastal.com.